What a glorious day it will be when we see, when we shout, when we sing. Those three things are action verbs in which we will be involved in praising our God for all of eternity. And we look forward to that day very much. Invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 6. While you're getting settled into the sixth chapter of that first book of the New Testament, want to again express the sincere appreciation that we as members of the church here at Northfield Boulevard have for the number of visitors that are with us from various places around the country, from the community. It is good for us to be together today on a day in which our nation celebrates independence. And as Brother Brian led us in prayer earlier today, we're thankful that we have the opportunity to assemble freely, to worship our God without any fear of man's favor. And we're glad that you are here for that purpose as well, to worship our God and to pray to Him and to sing and to be engaged in all the activities that we are engaged in. I want us to talk this morning about something that we all agree is important. There's not going to be any debate as to whether or not prayer is important. We all agree that prayer is important when we come together on occasions like this. Even so far today, we prayed almost a half a dozen times, at least publicly, and no telling how many other times individual prayers have been made as we have sing these songs to God and praise to Him and prayer to Him as well. But I want us to talk about prayer maybe with a little bit of a different flavor today and one in which I think we may be a little uncomfortable talking about when using the text of Luke chapter 11 or Matthew chapter 6 as we're going to do today. Because the subtext is using Jesus' teachings on the subject of prayer in order to pray effectively and to pray well. It is true that there are a number of ways to approach a study or a sermon on prayer. I remember being a young boy and hearing about acts where you begin by adoring or by asking God. And then you confess and then you provide your thanksgiving And then you make supplication to God. And so that nicely spells acts. I was just made aware this morning of the acronym PRAY, where we begin by praising our God, and then we repent of our sins, and then we ask or adore Him, and we yield to His ways or to His will. And so those are kind of nice, creative, easy ways to remember as a pattern for the framework of the way that we pray to our God. That's not necessarily the avenue that I want us to explore together today, as I want to use Matthew chapter 6, a text that many in the religious world are very familiar with, to provide a framework for prayer today. And as I mentioned we may be a little uncomfortable because the world is so familiar with Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13, and because of the violation of Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, that we'll read about. But I want us to look at this as a preacher friend of mine likes to talk about with those fresh eyes, as if we've never read this before, where in verse 9, "...in this manner, therefore pray." And let's read the verses that follow where Jesus speaks. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In Luke chapter 11, you recall that the parallel text is a response where the earliest disciples come to Jesus and they said, Lord, teach us to pray because we have seen where prayer is important to you and it's certainly important in the kingdom. So teach us how to pray. And we as parents or grandparents or as elders and preachers, as Bible class teachers, we also teach the importance of prayer and how to pray. And there's something satisfying at hearing a four or five or six-year-old in the process of learning how to pray and to pray effectively. But one of the things that I want us to appreciate is that there's a difference between what we call the model prayer and the Lord's prayer. And generally speaking, when we look at this particular text, Matthew chapter 6 verses 9 through 13 or Luke chapter 11 in the parallel text, we read a prayer that many call the Lord's prayer. And let me ask this question as a way of introduction, and that is, are we comfortable, or maybe another way of thinking about it, is are we uncomfortable with this text? And the reason that we are uncomfortable with this text, or at least sometimes we're uncomfortable with it, is because of verse 7 in Matthew chapter 6, where among other things that are prohibited by Jesus is the idea of vain repetition. And I think we can all agree that those that have memorized and memorized well Matthew 6, 9 through 13, nothing wrong with memorizing the text. There's something good about memorizing biblical text. But those that have memorized it and that say it without thinking anything are probably in violation of Matthew 6, verse 7, where it's vain repetition. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth and in heaven. And we just fly through it. And I've been places where they recite the Lord's Prayer, as it is called. In my Bible, the subject heading is that of the model prayer. And I think that may be a little bit better of a way of describing Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. Because thinking about John chapter 17, where our brother Brian took us in verses 5 and 6 this morning in our Bible class, that may be more likely the Lord's Prayer. Because that's a lengthy, at least in terms of prayers in the Bible, prayer in which Jesus prays about himself. He prays about the Father. He prays about the relationship. He prays about each of us as well. And so what I want us to do this morning is to use Matthew chapter 6, a text that sometimes we, at least I, shy away from because of the vain repetition that others have incorporated into it. Can we learn about the pattern of prayer and how a man or a woman prays well by a series of statements that we know or that I know particular things? In thinking about Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13, I think there are a number of things that one who prays well knows. 
But I have boiled it down to seven things. And seven is a good biblical number, right? For the idea of completeness. And it's not that we're going to cover every aspect of prayer in our study together today. But certainly there is something to be said about these seven elements of prayer. Number one is a man who prays well, according to Matthew 6, which we're using as our text today, is someone who knows that he's in a family of believers. When we pray to our God, we are praying to our Father. In fact, note if you would, the first word of the prayer is not my Father in heaven or your Father in heaven, but our Father in heaven. And I never really stopped to think about that until just a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago, this idea of praying to our God. We, as saints, as New Testament Christians, understand that we are not alone in our service to the Creator. We're familiar with passages like Acts 2, verse 47, where it says, The Lord adds to the church daily those who were saved. And so we are in a community of believers. And we're familiar with, I think, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19, where the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the church at Ephesus that basically we are a household of believers. He says, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And so we as Christians have a special relationship with the Creator that enables us this unfettered and complete access to our God in being able to pray to Him. And when we pray to our God, we are praying to our Father who gladly adopted us into His family. And we are citizens of that kingdom, members of that household children in that family. I want to look at uh, three or four passages here real quickly here. One from the book of Psalms and then two from the New Testament. I want to go back to Psalm 68. And I thought that this was an interesting text to read and to reflect on. Psalm 68 is in some ways a, a more lengthy psalm. We're used to psalms that are only two, three, four, five verses. But this one goes on for quite some time. And in Psalm 68, in verse 5, he says, in speaking about God, a father of the fatherless, a defender of the widows, is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. I like verse 6. I like them all. But verse 6 says, He sets the solitary in families. God understands that you and I are not meant to be in faithful service to Him by ourselves. There will be times where we are separated from our families. We cannot be with our spiritual family 24-7. We are sometimes separated. But we need each other. We are a family of God. We are in a family of believers. And when we pray, we are praying to our Father who is in heaven, as we'll talk about in just a moment. Two other passages, one from Galatians and one from the book of Ephesians that I wanted us to to just highlight briefly here. In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 5, it talks about redeeming those who were under the law that we might receive the 
adoption as children or the adoption as sons. And then drop down into chapter 5 and verse 10. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will have no other mind. That in Galatians 5 and verse 10, he says, He who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. Go back to that first part of that verse in verse 10. He says, I have confidence in you in the Lord. We are in the Lord. We are in a relationship with him. And then just a page or so over in your Bibles, in Ephesians chapter 1, we read that we have been predestined. Now, that doesn't mean what the world means in terms of predestination or what many religious folk would have us to believe. But it does mean that we are predestined us to adoption as sons in Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. When we pray to God, the first thing that we remember is that we are in a family of believers. Secondly, I know that I'm a child of the Father. The term Father needs to be fully appreciated in the fact that we are not praying to a, uh, someone who is under our authority, but rather we are praying to our God who is our authority, who is our parent. I remember the first time, probably 30 years ago, I heard someone reference our heavenly parent in prayer. And I thought, well, that struck me. We are praying to our heavenly parent. We are praying to our Father, our God in heaven. And we, as outlined in John chapter 1 in one of the texts that we used in our Bible classes this morning, we are his children. We are children of God. So when we pray to God, it's not just about acts. It's not just about pray. Those those are important. But it's knowing I'm in a family of believers and that I'm a child of the Father. Turn, if you would, over to 1 John chapter 3. And you probably knew that we were going to go to 1 John at some point in our discussion of us being children of God. But in 1 John chapter 3, which we studied in great detail about 18 months ago... He says, Behold, look, see, big news, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. That's an impressive thing that we should be called children of God is what John is arguing here. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. You know, there are a number of things. If I were going to do a sermon just on those three verses that I would probably outline. But one of those things that I would certainly want to make sure that I highlight is the notion that God's love for me and God's love for you is supreme. It is incomparable. The idea that God loves us. In Romans chapter 5, we are told that God loved us so much that even while we were in sin, He sent His Son to die for us. That's an impressive measure of love. And not only is that impressive, but secondly, what I would note as being impressive is that we are called children of God because we are adopted into, into His family. And then we start looking more and more like our pure Father. That's what we want. 
We want people to look at us, to see us, and to say, you look an awful lot like your spiritual parent. You talk like him. You have his accent. You look in the mirror and you say, I'm looking more like my father every day. And that's a good thing, to be like our father in heaven. And then look, if you would, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1, another familiar text. He says, be imitators of God as dear children. We who imitate our God and do so like a child imitates his parent. Most of us at some point in our younger years, we walked in our dad's shoes or maybe as little girls, you put on your mom's heels. Uh, You acted like them. You tried to mimic their behaviors and maybe embarrass them by pointing out the way that they talked or the way that they did particular things. We are to mimic our Father in heaven. Thirdly, a man who prays well, which is what we all want to be doing, is one who knows that God is special. Hallowed be your name. We don't use that term an awful lot now, although I've heard it in public prayers, and I think rightly so. Private prayers would be good to incorporate this idea of hallowing the name of God. But what does it mean to hallow his name? Well, I looked up a couple of different definitions, both in just basic English as well as going back to the Greek that Brian talked about that we would have been familiar with at this part of the first century. And I came up with about five separate words, sacred and holy, separate, revered, or consecrated. The idea of something that is different, that is special, that is separate, that is unique, that is unlike the commonplace. Dear God, when we pray to God, our Father, you are special. You are different. We use the word today in public prayer, you are awesome. And certainly he is. He is an incredibly wonderful being and is our holy, separate, sacred, revered, consecrated heavenly parent. There's something very special about the name of our God. Go back to John chapter 17 where we quoted from and we looked at verse 5 briefly in our Bible class this morning, but go back to verse 6 of John chapter 17 where this is Jesus praying in what we could refer to as the Lord's prayer. And in John chapter 17 and verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name Not my name, but I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. The point being, when we pray to God, it is not about me, it is not about myself, it is not about I. Though there are times when we pray about me, myself, and I, and about our needs. But first and foremost, when we pray, we are saying, God, you're special. You are spectacular. You are beyond comparison because there is nobody or no thing to compare you to. That's how amazing you are. And we are to use that name in a very special way, which goes back to the beginning. Where in Exodus chapter 20, in those Ten Commandments, one of those first four commandments is to honor the name of God and to not use it in vain. 
The hallowing of God's name is, I would make the argument, and I think you would all agree with me, is absolutely essential to our relationship with him. Go back to the prophet Isaiah chapter 29. And I came across this particular text and I thought that just fits perfectly. And Isaiah 29 and verse 23, when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will hallow my name and hallow the Holy One of Jacob and fear the God of Israel. We are to hallow God's name. He is special. So number one, I'm in a family of believers. Number two, I'm a child of the Father. Number three, that Father is special. And number four, when I pray to God, I know that the kingdom is imperative. Nothing matters more than your kingdom than anything else. Thy kingdom and thy will, or your kingdom and your will... Not my own wishes. And that goes well with the prayer acronym, with the idea of yielding to God and His will. I would make the argument, and and I'm speaking from personal experience, that this is the part of the model prayer that we are the most uncomfortable with. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Not so much thy will be done, but thy kingdom come. In fact... I grew up as a young boy and learned in Bible class very early on that one of the reasons that we are cautious with repetition is not just vain repetition, but praying thy kingdom come would be incorrect because we know the kingdom has already come. Well, I want us to view two different ways of looking at the coming of the kingdom, which may challenge your thinking. So just hear me out before you say, nah, he's completely got it wrong. There are a couple of ways of thinking about your kingdom come. One, which is, I would think, the primary way that most people in the world think about the kingdom coming is with a nod or a view towards premillennialism, with the idea of saying, we want your kingdom to come and be established physically in Jerusalem Physically in Israel, those that believe that Israel needs to be protected today as a nation state because that's where Jesus is going to come back to. And that idea of a thousand year reign on earth. And so there are those who say that this is what it means when you say your kingdom come. And I'm not about to suggest that that's not what Jesus was talking about. Not so much a physical kingdom, but we know that the kingdom is at hand We know that it is near. And I think we all agree that this violates basic biblical teaching. Matthew 3 verse 2 where it talks about thy kingdom is at hand. Or the kingdom is near. Or Acts chapter 2 where we see the kingdom actually established. Now here's where I want to challenge our thinking and challenge my thinking as well. And that is, is it possible that a person could think about the kingdom as being what's going on in the world, in the kingdom that you and I are citizens of, and that I believe that we're going to talk about a little bit more tonight with the idea of the preciousness of the kingdom, and that is with a view towards the growth of the kingdom by way of our efforts as well as his efforts. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we learn that we plant 
that some water, but that God gives the increase. Increase to what? You could say to the church, yes. To the community of believers, yes. But what else are we wanting to happen? We're wanting and we actually pray sometimes publicly that the borders of the kingdom are increased. And so could I say in my prayer, I want your kingdom to come to all men. And indeed it has. All the world has been exposed to the gospel. But I want to be the agent wherein I am bringing the kingdom message to others. Or think about Luke chapter 17. Turn over to Luke chapter 17. I had not thought about this passage until preparing for this particular study. And in Luke chapter 17 verse 20, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here and see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is where? It's within you. It's within me. Now, I'm not about, so don't misquote me and don't misunderstand me, that we, are, we should start rotely quoting Matthew 6, 9 through 13 without thinking about it. But could a person pray, I want your kingdom to come in the sense that all men are engaged in it and are part of it? And I think that we have to appreciate that with an understanding of the kingdom, with that flavor, it may change the way that we think about. And we might think about this pattern of prayer, knowing that the kingdom is imperative as a little bit of a different flavor. Number five, a person who prays well is a person who knows what it means to be content. Give us this day our daily bread. He does not say, give me my bread tomorrow. Nor does he say, give me all the other things that we sometimes think about and are right to be prayerful about. But the attitude of contentment and being content is indeed central to who we are as citizens of the kingdom, as individuals who are New Testament saints. In first or in Philippians chapter 4 and verses 11 through 13, a text that we just recently concluded a little bit of a more detailed study of. He says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. He says, I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so Paul here says, it doesn't matter whether I'm in prison or whether I am free. It doesn't matter whether I am in Rome or I am in Corinth. I have learned in wherever I am and whatever status I am in, I've learned to be content. Because contentment is important. Go back and read 1 Timothy chapter 6 and read verses 6 through about verse 10. And you'll see this idea of contentment, which is where we see that phrase that Paul uses, that the love of money, which is pierced through many individuals, is a root of all forms of all types of evil. And then I was also reminded of Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, one of my favorite verses in the book of Romans, where the apostle says, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. The fact is, is we have to trust God. 
And when he says, give us this day our daily bread, that is a reminder to me and a reminder to you that I've just got to trust God about today. Recently in a study with someone, and we were talking about a number of different things. And one of the things that came up in the study was, what about this and what about that? What about this and what about that? All things in the future. And one of the things that we stressed in the study was, let's just, let's just worry about today. Let's just focus on today. As Dale Carnegie says, live in day-tight compartments. Just live for today. Now, that doesn't mean you, you can't plan for tomorrow. It doesn't mean that we aren't concerned about things that are in our future, because rightly so. But go back and read Matthew chapter 6, verses 30-34, where Jesus actually says, take care of today. And tomorrow will take care of itself. Know to be content in the way that we pray. Number six, know the importance or the vitality of forgiveness. Go back to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 12. And in Matthew 6 verse 12, Jesus says, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now Jesus will later develop this into a major portion of his teaching in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and following. Then you remember that over the course of those 13, 15 verses, that Jesus says, you cannot be the kind of person that says, please forgive me, but you are unwilling to forgive someone else. And the other thing that I think is important for us to know is that this is the only part of this model prayer where Jesus goes back and provides commentary on it. Of all the different things that Jesus could have chosen to highlight and say, now let me come back and revisit this point. This is the point that he comes back and revisits. And it seems to me that one of the reasons that he does so is because this is so challenging. We want forgiveness when we have done wrong. But we do not like to give forgiveness because sometimes we like holding grudges. We like being able to hold it over someone's head. We like being able to say, well, wait a minute, you did this wrong to me three months ago. Jesus says, forgive the debts. Forgive those things that are wrong. We need the Spirit of the Lord when we approach forgiveness. Psalm 86 is one of my favorites where it says, the Lord is ready to forgive. And instead, what we sometimes do is we practice a reluctance to forgive. And we've got to make sure that we are ready to forgive as well. Well, number seven, and finally, a man who prays well is one who knows the importance of avoiding temptation. Go to verse 13, where he says, Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then he concludes with the concept of your kingdom is that your kingdom and the power and the glory belong to you forever. Amen. Let me start by saying very clearly here before we close out that this statement in verse 13 does not contradict uh, with other passages in Scripture. For example, James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say that when he is tempted, he is tempted by God, which was our Scripture reading a few moments ago. Read the entire context of James chapter 1 and you'll get the picture of where James was going with that particular passage, with that particular concept. But if you would, note if you would, three helpful passages, all in the New Testament. One is in Matthew 
One is in John and the other is also in Matthew. Turn, if you would, over to Matthew chapter 24 as we close with a couple of passages here. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 20. 24 and 25 are two consequential chapters in the book of Matthew as it talks about uh, the temporal judgment on Jerusalem and, of course, the eternal judgment wherein all of us will one day stand before our God and we shall see the king someday. There in verse 20, it says, Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. And there's so much to be said about that particular passage and about its context. But the point that I'm trying to make, along with using Matthew chapter 26, is simply this. That there are things that we pray to God about, wherein we ask Him, please deliver me from a difficulty, deliver me from some sort of a challenge, where we are otherwise having to endure the challenge, which just makes our job all the more difficult. Or a page over in your Bibles or two in Matthew chapter 26 in verse 41. Remember when Jesus went to the garden and prayed and he prayed those three different times the same thing. Remember what Jesus said to his closest disciples? He says, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. So he's not suggesting that that God is going to be there to tempt you, but he's saying you understand that James chapter 1, each man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires or his own temptations, his own lusts. And then a third passage is in the book of John. Again, we go back to John chapter 17. And it's interesting how many times we've gone to John chapter 17 while looking at Matthew chapter 6, where you have one being a model prayer and the other being the Lord's prayer. But in John chapter 17 and verse 15, it says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. And then I'm reminded of passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which is a go-to passage for those of us who want to appreciate that God cares about me in time of temptation. God provides a way of escape according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And Peter's second epistle in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, will close with this text where he says, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. I like Matthew 6. I like the whole Bible. And I, I know you do too. But I like Matthew 6. Verses 9 through 13, because it's a text that we hear quoted so often in violation, probably, of Matthew 6, verse 7. But there's nothing wrong with memorizing biblical texts. There's something right with memorizing biblical texts. And this is one of those texts that, number one, we should not apologize for memorizing Or number two, using in our own public and prayer and private prayers in praying to our God and asking Him to be that God who is the one who adopted us into His family so that we can be His child, knowing that He is special and that the kingdom is imperative, knowing the importance of contentment and the vitality of forgiveness, and knowing that God wants to help us to avoid the difficult days that are found so often in this life. 
You know, we began this morning by praying, and we're ending this sermon by offering this prayer. And that is, if you're not a Christian, we are hoping that you'll make the choice to become one this morning. Because one of the great benefits, and there are a lot of benefits to being a Christian, is this unfettered ability to speak directly to God and say, God, you are special, you are great, and I need you. And he wants for all of us to come to that place of repentance. If you're here and you are not a Christian, we hope that you'll make the choice to do what God has asked you to do and to be baptized yet this morning for the forgiveness of sins. If that's something that you want to do or maybe you want to talk further about that, as Brother Brian said in the introduction to our services today, don't leave if you've got questions. We're happy to give you the answers, not based on our opinions, but based on what the scriptures teach in order to be saved. For those that are Christians, for those of us that are saints, let's continue to pray well, pray effectively, and pray fervently to our God. And if we can help you in some area of weakness in your life, we'd welcome that opportunity as well. If we can help you in any way, let us know. While together we stand, while we sing.